This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 30th, 2008. I'm Caleb Brown. Cato Institute senior fellow Robert A. Levy was the chief architect behind Heller v. District of Columbia, a case that has firmly established the Second Amendment as protecting an individual right to own firearms. The case also struck down the District of Columbia's ban on handgun ownership. We spoke Friday about the majority opinion, the impact on future interpretations of the Miller decision, and what's next for gun rights litigation. The litigation has been unfolding for five and a half years. It has been a protracted but interesting endeavor, and we are very gratified that Justice Scalia and his four colleagues that joined the 5-4 majority adopted, I'd say, many and perhaps even most of the points that we have put forward in our briefs, our written briefs, and our oral argument. And included among those are the point, the key point, the threshold point, that the Second Amendment does indeed secure an individual right to keep and bear arms, and that that right does not have to be exercised solely within the context of militia service. It extends to self-defense, it extends to hunting to provide food for your family, and other purposes as well. Some of these purposes predated the United States Constitution, predated the United States government. They're part of our rights handed down under our common law tradition and indeed part of our natural rights tradition. So indeed, they could not have depended upon the existence of a militia uh, for their application. So that's point number one. Point number two, we're gratified that he saw that with such an individual right, the D.C. gun ban could not be sustained. This is a gun ban on all persons at all times in all homes for all reasons whatsoever, and Justice Scalia concluded that such a ban could not be considered as a regulation that could coexist with an individual right secured by the Second Amendment. So the three provisions that we challenged were all declared unconstitutional. The first, the ban on handguns. The second, the ban on carrying a handgun from room to room in your own home without a permit, and you can't get a permit. The third, the permission to have rifles and shotguns in your home, but with the qualification that they must be unloaded and either disassembled or trigger locked. All of those regulations have been overturned. Put that all together and you have an opinion that I think we're very happy with. Was there anything that was particularly striking? I know that in Supreme Court opinions, majority opinions, there are often key phrases that resonate for, for decades. Was there anything particularly striking about this opinion? Um, there was this notable fact. Um, we had asked the court to adopt what lawyers call strict scrutiny. There are three levels of scrutiny. There's rational basis scrutiny, where the court effectively rubber stamps anything the legislature comes up with. That's almost no scrutiny at all. There's an intermediate level of scrutiny, what the, some people call heightened scrutiny, and this is what the Justice Department recommended in their brief. And then there is strict scrutiny, which we recommended. Strict scrutiny allows certain regulations to exist, but if the regulation is with respect to a fundamental right under the Constitution, the government has to jump through a couple of hoops. First, it has to show that its regulation has a compelling reason, and second, it has to show that the regulation will be effective at satisfying the need and 
is no more sweeping than is absolutely necessary, doesn't trample on any more rights than is essential to accomplish the ends that the government seeks. Now, the Supreme Court resolved this case without adopting any particular level of scrutiny. Woody would have preferred to see strict scrutiny, but at least the court categorically rejected the rational basis standard. And then it went on to reject an alternative standard that Justice Breyer suggested in his dissenting opinion, which is called a balancing of interests standard. Now, what that leaves us with is either this heightened or intermediate scrutiny or strict scrutiny. We don't know which, and the court won't decide that until perhaps later litigation comes forth. But at least it's a heightened level at a minimum. And for that, I think uh, we're pleased as well. What's the next step in terms of litigating, I assume, particular gun restrictions in Chicago, New York, San Francisco? Mm -hmm. a, a lawsuit was filed, I think, 15 minutes after our opinion came down in Chicago. San Francisco won't be far behind. My guess is that New York will be challenged as well. So there are two, I think, strands of litigation that will occur. The first is to test the proposition whether the Second Amendment applies to the states. Washington, D.C. is a unique case. It is a federal enclave under the total control of the United States Congress. The Bill of Rights indisputably applies to federal areas. But there's some question as to whether the Bill of Rights, in particular the Second Amendment, applies to the states. Most of the Bill of Rights, there have been case law, and it's been determined that they apply to the states. There's been no definitive determination with respect to the Second Amendment. So if Chicago is to be challenged, or New York, or San Francisco, we will have to first determine that the Second Amendment has applicability to the states. I think that's a foregone conclusion, but it is one that will have to be formalized. The second area of litigation is to put some flesh on this skeleton so we know which regulations are permissible and which regulations are not permissible. The court suggested that the Second Amendment is not absolute. That's hardly surprising. We know that the First Amendment's not absolute. We have restrictions on certain forms of campaign finance expenditures, on advertising, on yelling fire in a crowded theater, on incitement to riot, on defamation, on extortion. Despite the fact that the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law, it couldn't be clearer, and yet we do permit exceptions. The Second Amendment is the same. It's not absolute. The court said, for sure you can keep guns away from kids and from felons with a violent record of crime and from people who are determined to be crazy. And you can keep weapons of mass destruction away from everybody and you can keep weapons away from sensitive areas like, let's say, elementary schools. But what you can't do is keep all handguns away from all people in all homes at all times. So there's some things that we know are impermissible, and there are other things, like regulations on weapons of mass destruction, that are quite clearly permissible. In the middle, there's a large array of possibilities that we don't know the answer to, and that's going to have to be determined by future litigation. Were you surprised at all that only five members of the U.S. Supreme Court found an individual right within the Second Amendment? I was surprised. I mean, perhaps it's because I've been immersed in this issue for some time, and I'm utterly convinced that the evidence with respect to the text of the Constitution, the structure and the purpose of the Constitution, the history of the Second Amendment, 
I'm utterly convinced that the arguments are overwhelming on our side of this issue. So it is astonishing to me that there are four justices on the Supreme Court that don't buy that line of reasoning. Nonetheless, it only takes five for a majority. I'm rather, I would rather have uh, what we got, which is five justices on all the issues that they considered in agreement rather than a splintered opinion where we had different subsets of the court uh, opting for majorities or pluralities on different issues and you end up with an opinion that nobody knows quite what it means. What does this do to Miller? I, I, rem I remember reading what uh, one commentator on this uh, case said. It's as if I've been transported to another place in time where Miller never happened. What is the impact on Miller? Miller was misinterpreted by appellate courts across the country to suggest that there was no individual right to keep and bear arms for private purposes. That is not what Miller said. What Miller said was that in order to qualify for protection, a weapon must be shown to meet two criteria. First, that it had militia utility, and second, that it was in common use at the time persons would be called to militia service. The focus was on the weapon and not on the person. There was no inquiry as to whether Miller himself was a member of a militia or even would have qualified to be in a militia or was using the weapon in a context that would be considered weapon use, uh, militia use. Instead, the, the question was solely, was the sawed-off shotgun that was the issue in the Miller case the type of weapon that would be protected by the Second Amendment. The opinion in the Heller case does nothing to alter that. The issue in Heller is handguns, rifles, and shotguns, not sawed-off shotguns. These are weapons indisputably in common use and with military utility. They are weapons that are protected, and therefore the Heller decision can be reconciled with the Miller decision. As long as Miller is properly understood, it's not inconsistent or incompatible with Heller. It's only when Miller is misinterpreted, as it has been by many of the appellate courts, that there is a disharmony between Heller and Miller. Robert A. Levy is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow, co-author of the book The Dirty Dozen, and Chief Architect of the successful Heller v. District of Columbia ruling ending D.C.'s gun ban. This is the Cato Daily Podcast. You can get your copy of The Dirty Dozen at Cato.org.